0: and he could see the rescue developing, they had Thai Navy SEALs arrive, but of course no one had any real caving experience, let alone cave diving experience, and let alone cave diving rescue experience, all of which we had. And whilst I didn't know him, his name was Vernon, he certainly knew of us, the now exploits, so he gave a note to the Minister of the Interior to say, you have one chance at this rescue, you need people with experience, and he gave my name, John's name, and and Rob's name.
1: In 2018, an adolescent Thai soccer team and their coach were exploring the Tom Wong Caves in Shanghai, Thailand. The monsoon rains came early, and the rising water trapped the boys inside the cave. While many of us were glued to the news for updates, including myself, Rick Stanton was diving into the situation head on. Rick is a cave diver. He's been exploring underwater passages and tunnels for 40 years. He and his close diving buddies were some of the only people in the world who could save these 13 lives. Despite battling the clock, rising water levels, language barriers, and more, they got the boys out alive. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Since the famous Thai Cave Rescue, Rick Stanton has been recognized globally for his leadership. He was awarded one of Great Britain's George Medals. He came out with a book called Aquanaut. He also participated in films and documentaries about the mission, including a big Hollywood production that's coming out this fall. But before the rescue, Rick never expected that his love for caving would bring him into the global limelight. Rick's interest in diving started when he was 18 years old. He saw a documentary called The Underground Eiger" about a record-breaking cave dive in England. The film introduced Rick to the world of caving, and it totally changed his life. Rick Stanton, welcome to Wild Ideas
0: Worth Living. Thank you, Shelby.
1: You really do exemplify wild ideas worth living, like of all the people I've interviewed. So I'm really excited to talk to you. Last night, I found the movie, The Underground Eiger, and I started watching it. And I was like, oh, yeah, this movie was made in 1979. There's exploration, there's caving, there's some beer drinking and partying.
0: And all of those are what identified themselves to me as something uh, worth pursuing.
1: Yeah, so so caving is such a interesting hobby, but you said that you know during uni you got involved with a caving club, which we don't have those here, so maybe you could tell me a little bit about well, what first lured you in from that movie?
0: Sure. <laughs> uh, well, uh, the documentary it was about some uh, people that specialised in cave diving, so there's. There's dry caving or spelunking, as you know it in America, um, but not everyone that goes dry caving or spelunking goes cave diving. That's like the, a sort of one very niche branch of the sport. But here were these guys doing it, on actually at that time was a sort of world record level doing long distances. But the the thing that resonated with me was um, they were exploring. This was in north of England. And they were able to go off exploring, which is something that ordinary people just can't do any anymore. You you know, most of the world, all the surface of the planet Earth has been photographed. Even if someone hasn't been there, you can look at it from the comfort of your living room on Google. uh, Yet, in a cave, you have no idea what's around the next corner. And so, the fact that you could you can explore that that was the main thing that drew me in, and the sort of camaraderie and teamwork. You know, I was always interested in diving. I grew up in the 60s. I was watching Jacques Cousteau. I was a good swimmer. I was water confident. So I was, but this sort of gave um, being in water a, a purpose of, of, of that and the purpose being exploring. When
1: Rick saw the underground Eiger, he was about to take his entrance exams for college. Once he got to university, he found out there was a caving club there. Through that club, Rick started exploring caves with his peers, and he quickly fell in love with it. It was the perfect activity for Rick. He could use his analytical brain to problem solve in the narrow passages, and his interests became even more niche as he discovered his passion for underwater caves. Since then, cave diving has become a lifelong pursuit. Rick spends his weekends and almost all of his vacations diving in caves around the world. When he dives, he gears up with a wetsuit, fins, and devices like cylinders and regulators. With all this equipment, some of which he builds himself, Rick can breathe under the surface for as long as 10 or 15 hours. For someone who's never done caving or descended into a cave underwater, can you just describe what that's like to us and just the sensory aspect of it?
0: Uh, Well, all caves are different, so it'd be hard to pigeonhole them. But the first thing is, of course, there's not any artificial light or any light at all. So just to see, you need some sort of light with you. So a a human eye can pick up one photon of light. So if there's just a chink in a blackout curtain, you'll see it. But underground, you cannot see a thing. You wouldn't be able to see your hand. You literally wouldn't see anything. So everything is seen through whatever torch you're carrying. You know, wow, specialty British caves are generally small, and British cave diving is generally poor visibility. And that's something we've become accustomed to. But for example, in America, you've got the caves of Florida, or nearby in Yucatan, Mexico, you've got those caves, and they've got visibility in excess of like 20 or 30 meters, 100 feet, say. Whereas in Britain, you'd be lucky to see, well, even 10 inches, to be honest. I think you need a good spatial awareness.
1: It's not something I have. (laughs) Something you've always had.
0: Um, I think so. And of course, then you hone it from experience. But yes, you certainly need to know left from right. And you can navigate by features. And also underwater. The amazing thing about being underwater is it's a three-dimensional experience. So if I put you in an unknown building you knew, know that you're going to be walking or crawling or whatever along the floor and wherever you go will be at floor level. Now imagine that building filled with water and you could literally fly up the stairs or, or, you know, float around the room up to the ceiling. And so cave diving's more like that. You could be anywhere in the passage as you wish.
1: You make a lot of your own gear because it's so niche.
0: Yeah. So, um, we're all about exploring caves and there is some incredible gear out there and you you could have one set of gear. In fact, most people do. Most people have one set of gear for all eventualities and they're just going in the caves for fun and that's completely applicable and nothing wrong with that. But we, as I said, like to make things complicated. We like to explore. We like to get to the end of the cave and to get to the end of any particular cave, especially in Europe. The reason why people haven't been further is there's normally some logistical or technical reason why it might be too deep or too small or something like that and you have to think of a way to get around it so therefore you have to modify the equipment to suit that particular cave so we're very good at that I designed a rebreather which is a sort of technical diving device which have been around they predate you know the scuba that Jacques Cousteau invented in the second world war but I configured it differently so it was on my side and not on my back, so you could go through low spaces. It's out of necessity, and again, that I think that's that free thinking and thinking out, outside the box, whatever you want to call it, and and just realizing what you want. You know, we'd rather buy something and modify it, but sometimes you can't just do that. You have to literally start from scratch.
1: Is there anything else that gives you the same sense that being underwater gives you, where you're like fully that, you know, focused? one one point focused
0: probably not but but underwater you are especially in a cave you're sort of essentially deprived because your vision is limited even if it was clear you've only got a tunnel vision with your light and your mask and you're in a different medium you can't breathe it unless you've got a you know a regulator so i think that concentrates the mind so i don't think anything like on the surface in air could could even equate to that you know, in my book, I talk about water people. Some people just instinctively would never go diving. Some people can do the courses and sort of become more familiar with it and quite overcome any fears. And some people are just natural uh, water people. And certainly, all all the people that are brought in on my team are all uh, natural water people.
1: What does it take to like train to get? good at these things I mean there's also this element like well there's a spatial awareness what skills do you need to have and then like to me I get scared easily of like everything even surfing when I'm held under a wave that's the only thing that maybe I could kind of relate to I'm not panicking is very hard for me it's like natural to want to panic how do you train yourself not to panic and
0: well that, I think not panicking is the probably the principal thing that you need in cave diving but you've got to be confident in water everything happens slowly so the stock phrases there's only two speeds and that's dead slow and stop so you can always stop what you're doing and think about it and then maybe go back but also you need some technical abilities like to look maintain and manage and think about your equipment you need logistical planning uh, and you need fitness. So obviously, to go underground, you you have to be fit. So it's, uh, I think it it predisposes itself to people that are more sort of calm in nature. If I looked at my uh, back at my school reports for my book uh, Aquanaut, and there, my form teacher kept saying that I had an unruffled nature. And w- wasn't easily disturbed. That was evident back then to him, and maybe that's something I sort of maybe subconsciously realized when I was watching the Underground Iger that you know my my nature was compatible with that.
1: It's hard not to panic when you try to breathe with a regulator for the very first time. Biologically, your body thinks that if you breathe underwater, you'll drown. Divers have to push through this mental block and learn to relax so they don't burn through their air supply. Rick's ability to stay calm in stressful situations ended up helping him professionally too. After university, Rick continued to cave dive, but his hobby didn't pay the bills. So he became a firefighter with the West Midlands Fire Service. You were attracted to becoming a fireman. You did the fire service uh, in your country. What made you
0: choose that job? I wouldn't say it was purely for altruistic reasons. I joined the fire service. I was aware of it. My father had been a firefighter during the Second World War. But it was more because there were friends who, who did it. And I saw the benefits as in quite a lot of time off because of the shift work. You know, you form good teams and good bonds with people and sort of hopefully have fun uh, and being beneficial to society. So I know there's a huge overlap in the fire service and caving and cave diving. You know, it's often dark, it's dangerous, you're using breathing apparatus, you're going in and what happened in my cave diving career, you're rescuing people. Uh, I wasn't even thinking back then about the other benefit, which is retiring early. So, when you did the Thai rescue, I mean, you, you were basically retired. I was. Yeah. Well, I, was, I was retired. I wasn't at a pensionable age, but uh, yeah, I was in terms of getting the government pension, which we get over here. But certainly I'd been retired from the fire service uh, four years. Yes. And had received a pension those four years.
1: Can you tell me how you got involved in the Tom Luang rescue in 2018? You were happily retired.
0: And then I was happily retired. I'd gone on a great weekend with about eight people who I'd been at university with 40 years previously, and that very weekend was the weekend the boys went in the cave. There was an expat British caver who lived near the cave, and he was actually the expert on Tan Luang. And he could see the rescue developing, they had the seals, Thai Navy seals arrive, But of course, no one had any real caving experience, let alone cave diving experience, and let alone cave diving rescue experience, all of which we had. And whilst I didn't know him, his name was Vernon, he certainly knew of us, the now exploits. So he gave a note to the minister of the interior to say, you have one chance at this rescue. You need people with experience And he gave my name, John's name, and and Rob's name. Rob knew the cave. So that minister, I, I give full credit to that minister. He had the vision to realize that Vern was actually speaking sense. And so he called us there and then and said, you're coming on a plane tonight.
1: When we come back, Rick talks about assembling a team of cave divers to rescue the Thai soccer team, how his life has changed since the rescue, and his thoughts on going after wild ideas. By the time Rick was called by the Thai government, he'd heard about the rescue efforts and he even started to prepare. He'd done a handful of major rescues before, and he knew he was up to the task. When Rick and his diving partner John arrived at the Thai cave, they quickly got to work. This cave system is big. It's about six and a half miles long, with plenty of narrow tunnels, larger caves, and boulders. Nobody knew how far into the tunnels the boys were. On their first dive, Rick and John quickly encountered a group of four Thai pump workers who'd also been trapped by the rains. Rick and John shared the regulators with the workers and safely got them out. But that experience was an eye opener for everyone involved. First, it gave the Thai government and the American military faith that Rick and John knew what they were doing. Second, it became clear that rescuing anyone without diving experience would be a challenge. Rick described getting the pump workers out as a constant wrestling match. They were flailing around in panic and nearly drowned the divers. Remember, using a regulator can be an anxiety-producing experience if you haven't used one before. It'd be even scarier if you were in a confined space, fearing for your life. Once they found the soccer team, Rick and John needed to come up with a plan on how they were going to get them out. The boys were almost a mile deep into the cave. The two men could not rescue them alone, so Rick assembled a team of people, some of his closest friends who were just as knowledgeable and obsessive about cave diving as he was. Perhaps more importantly, he could trust them. But it wasn't as simple as finding a team and heading into the cave. There were a lot of other factors at play. There were so many incredible things that had to align and that you guys made happen to pull this off I mean there's a lot of bureaucracy and there was a lot of press and there was a lot of like what you call bullshit how how did you do that?
0: Certainly the press stuff we just very good at um blinkering so we just blinkered the press. We knew you know they were, you couldn't escape them there were hundreds of of the journalists there
1: what's blinkering that's a that's a British term that I'm not aware oh, of
0: sorry uh, just um, ignore them.
1: Okay. I like that word. Okay. So you blinkered the press. And then as far as like the most remarkable thing, I think is you assembled this team of very unlikely characters. And what a lot of people didn't realize is, you know, when you took those pump workers, they barely made it many feet without wanting to take out their respirators and practically drown you guys. It was risky. So you were going to have to sedate the boys. Can you just talk to me about that whole process and how you you know, you had this one friend, the only guy that would actually do that, and that had never been tested.
0: That's not strictly true. I, okay. I actually know five cave diving anesthesiologists.
1: Oh, that's incredible.
0: Um, uh, and a few of them uh, are in America. But as you said, no one had ever done this before. It was uh, hugely radical and, and unprecedented, and there was no no knowledge or basis or research or anything to know whether it, it would work so the reason I chose Dr Richard Harris is because I felt that he was a sort of larger than life character who would be willing to listen to our concerns and that sedation was necessary and really risk his whole career and reputation and I thought that he was probably the only one that would consider doing that
1: Yeah. And he did it and it worked. It was incredible. What also is really unique is that you guys are all really good friends. So you picked this team and they're all your
0: buddies, which adds like a whole other element to the rescue. I've got buddies all over the world, but, and, and that's how I knew Dr. Richard Harris. I'd met him previously in New Zealand, I think, quite a long time previously you know we've got a similar interest but the first thing i'd say is if you were picking a team to do something as desperate as this of course you'd pick people you know and trusted to be able to make decisions and be autonomous of course you'd do that you wouldn't pick strangers there's cave divers all over the world and some of them are presumably quite good but they don't quite do our style of diving we're all I would describe as expert problem solvers, and that was really what what was required there. We were literally writing the procedures for this as it was going along, so you needed, you know, people that could free think and critical think. So of course you'd only call your friends in, and we have to have, you know, a very tight knit team of people who've worked on expeditions together for twenty or more years. So we've been to the you know greatest depths of, of, of the planet and the, some of the longest dives. So of course. Those are the people that we would call in.
1: There's a lot of logistical prowess that was executed with this rescue. Did you get that from your caving in rescues or did you take some of this from the fire service?
0: Well, I'd say a lot of it is innately in all quite logical people. and Just by doing that, what we do for fun, which is go on these very long dives. It's not just putting a simple scuba cylinder on your back. We sometimes go uh, under, I've been underwater for like 20 hours at a time, or we've been in caves for weeks at a time. There's a whole logistical process involved in that. So, you know, I think logistics is one of our great fortes.
1: How did you, during the actual rescue, were you going off of adrenaline? Like, how did you guys just keep going, stay strong, well-fed? I mean, it was like a rigorous rescue kilometers of swimming with giant gear and, and humans
0: we didn't really have any choice we were the ones doing it i i lost a lot of weight i lost um about nine pounds in weight over the course of two weeks wow and that wasn't through not being able to feed myself that was, i guess that was just activity and uh i don't don't know if adrenaline is the right word but certainly there's a lot of thinking power that was going on especially in that middle week and i, th- I think that consumes energy
1: yeah I think people underestimate like when you're using your brain to solve problems, how much energy that breathes, but also cold water like burns a lot of calories
0: yeah well, for us, that wasn't the water was not cold it was twenty two degrees centigrade sorry to use the wrong measurement for America, but to us that's um that's warm, so we weren't concerned about the cold but but i I truly believe about you know th- deep thinking it burns a lot of energy
1: what you guys did was like you didn't have to do this, I know it was fun for you, but like you risked a lot to do this, and generosity is something that, I don't know, I feel like when you do a wild idea, but it's also tied to something greater than just you, it just makes it worth living.
0: Uh, you see, I, I don't know if I see it as generosity. I just see it as we were the best placed people on the planet to do it. You, what? Why wouldn't you? I just can't understand why you wouldn't step up to the mark. I, that's what I think it is, stepping up to the mark. If you can see something and you can do it, and no one else can, or you think you're as best placed as anyone, why would you not do that?
1: After 17 days of being trapped in the cave, the divers were able to guide all 12 boys and their coach to safety. No one had ever done a rescue like this before, and suddenly Rick became an international hero – he was part of National Geographic's award-winning documentary, The Rescue, and he wrote a book called Aquanaut. In 2021, Rick consulted on a feature film about The Rescue called 13 Lives. The movie stars Vigo Mortensen as Rick, and it's directed by Ron Howard. It will come out in the fall of 2022. Your life has probably changed a lot since the rescue. Do you want to comment on that? Like, how has your life changed? How has your relationship to caving changed?
0: Th- that's a good question, because actually, I'd, a few years before the rescue, I had sort of fallen out of cave- caving. Caving and I had fallen out of favor, I guess, because I realized that I had dedicated my whole life to it at the expense of a whole load of other things like relationships or family not that I particularly wanted a family and a whole load of things and I realized I was very task oriented and focused and I was almost questioning myself about whether I had made the right choices and so the rescue absolutely uh, reinforced the fact that I had made the right choices and it had turned me into the person that was able to to lead the rescue
1: it's so cool how like this this moment in your life came together. But you are also retired and quite happy and now yeah. you have a press interview with someone like me pretty much every day. You have a movie being made about you with I mean how badass is Viggo Mortensen's going to be playing you. Ron Howard's doing it.
0: Well, he's he's made it. I've seen he's it. He's made it. I've, oh I've cool. Seen, I was there. I was a technical advisor. I was there on set for two and a half months. Uh, I had to get to know, or Vigo had to get to know me prior to that. So we've had huge impact on, you know, input rather into that into that movie.
1: When, what was it like hanging out with Vigo? So he had to like become you and sort of act like you. Was yeah, that but weird?
0: He, but he's a better actor than me. So he became a better <laughs> me than I am.
1: That's great. That's not a bad thing with a lot more makeup.
0: And they and they recreated my house in Australia where they filmed it, and it, it, it was all sorts of surreal things, which is all part of you know how has my life changed? There's, there's been these opportunities that would never have happened before.
1: So you guys spent a little bit of time together, you and Vigo.
0: Uh we, oh yeah, before the filming and then when the filming. I mean, uh, yeah, we were on set every every day for two and a half months what do you think of the movie Uh, it's very good I better not say any more it's very
1: good okay good good
0: yeah don't tell me I you know know, the rescue has been uh, nominated for BAFTA it's an exceptionally good documentary and it's quite emotional You, you think how could the the Hollywood movie equal or better this it's different but equally as good
1: I just want to keep asking you for advice of
0: people who... Mo, most of my friends would say, in fact, most of my friends would say, don't ask me for advice. In fact, <laughs> it, in fact, most of my friends tell other people who I've just met, don't emulate anything I do because it's likely to end very badly. Your friends
1: really like to tease you. It's really funny. Um, I am going to ask you advice. What's, what's the best advice that's been given to you about well, about anything?
0: Well, I would say, uh, and this sort of comes down to the sort of modern time, lots of people uh, try to go too far too fast. It's not about enjoying the activity. They sort of switch sports. They try and go progress through courses and and go as fast as possible. So just take it steady. Enjoy the experience. I say if you take progress in small incremental steps, you'll still go a long way.
1: Rick never anticipated being one of the best cave divers in the world, but he took his time, he was always open to learning, and he continued to seek new challenges. Rick Stanton, thank you so much for coming on Wild Ideas Worth Living. I loved our conversation. Thank you for reminding me to slow down and to take small steps toward big goals. If you want to learn more about Rick Stanton, you can watch the National Geographic documentary, The Rescue, on Disney+. Plus. You can also read his great book, Aquanaut, the inside story of the Thai cave rescue, which we'll link to in the show notes. And keep an eye out for the film, 13 Lives, which will be out in November. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas of Puddle Creative, and our senior producer is Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paola Motula and Joe Crosby. As always, we appreciate when you follow this show, rate it, and review it wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.